Please take your Bibles and turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 3. 1 Thessalonians chapter 3. I'm reluctant to uh, report that uh, my my dad's going to be preaching for us uh, next week as he's visiting and uh, asked him if he would uh, share, the, share the word for us. But when I was growing up as a pastor's son, he would speak in our uh, Christian school chapel and would do his best to embarrass uh, his children any time that he spoke. And so even though I'm 41, uh, I still have this fear that, you know, it's going to be some sort of embarrassing story that he attempts to share. And so just to let you know in advance, whatever stories he tells, they're probably not true as he's older and older in age and his memory starts to fail and uh, he remembers me being a lot worse than I really was. Uh, so um, just want to clarify while he's not here so you can be prepared, all right? So, all right, 1 Thessalonians chapter 3 and uh, we're going to look at three, uh, three short verses here, uh, verses 11 through 13. So let's read these and then let's look to our Lord in prayer together. 1 Thessalonians 3, verse 11. Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you, and may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. Let's pray together. Father, we need your help at this time to understand your word and to have the significance of it impressed upon our hearts so that we receive it not as the words of man, but as what it truly is, the word of God, and so that we can walk in greater obedience to you. It's easy to overlook a passage like this, but as we consider it, let us be reminded of the fact that we are in desperate need of the truths we find in it. So help us to set aside distractions and to focus in on you and what you have called us to do and how you have called us to live. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. So if there's one area in our spiritual lives for which we need constant instruction and admonition, it would be this matter of prayer. If I was to poll the audience this morning and ask what one area in your spiritual life do you need the most growth, it wouldn't be long before prayer was mentioned as one particular spiritual need that we have. It's important for us to know how to pray and to cultivate the pattern of fervent prayer uh, for our spiritual life. And it's important for a number of reasons. Prayer is our means of communicating with God. He communicates to us through his word and we respond back to him in prayer. And so since it is our means to communicate with God, then we want to know how to pray and how to pray well. Also, God has ordained that through our prayer and through the prayers of his children that his will is accomplished. And so since our prayers work in 
in relationship to God's sovereign will, they accomplish things. And so because prayer accomplishes things, we want to be fervent in prayer. We want to know how to pray. Prayer also is a constant reminder of our dependence on God. The more we pray, the more we're reminded that we are dependent on Him for all aspects of our life. And, and, and a person who doesn't pray consistently, well, the more and more self-deceived they are into thinking that they are independent and self-sufficient. And so prayer is a reminder that we need God. And lastly, and perhaps most importantly, prayer is the most accurate gauge of our spiritual life. We might be able to fool people with our appearance, and we might be able to fool people with some of the things that we do and the way that we act. But prayer is that that true gauge, that true indication of where we are in our love for God. It was Robert Murray McShane who said, What a man is on his knees before God, that he is, and nothing more. Or we might say that we're, we're never more spiritual than our prayer life. Okay, that is the true measure of where we are in relationship to God. So since prayer is so vital to our spiritual life, it's important that we know how to pray. And, and one of the best places to learn how to pray is from the scriptures themselves. How did the Old Testament saints pray? How did Jesus pray? How did the apostles pray? What, what kinds of things did they say? What, for what did they petition God? And once we've understood how they prayed, that it's wise for us to pattern our prayer life after the prayer life of those prayers we find in, in Scripture. And so this morning we're considering this prayer at the end of chapter 3, verses 11 to 13. And, and as we look at this passage, I want us to consider the content of Paul's prayer for the Thessalonians, and then pattern our own prayer life after what we find for the apostle, that the Apostle Paul gives here. And in this prayer, we're going to see three things. We're going to see, first of all, that we want to pray with a proper view of God. We'll see, secondly, that we want to pray for the growth of our brothers and sisters in Christ. And then thirdly, we want to pray with an expectation of Christ's return. And I think if we take these elements that we find in this prayer and we incorporate them into our prayer life or we shape our prayer life after what we find here, I think we'll find our prayer life to be more robust and effective before God. Now, allow me to make one contextual note before we get into our study this morning. Uh, This particular prayer serves as both a transition and an introduction at this section in 1 Thessalonians. Okay, so it's, it serves, first of all, as a transition. Okay, from chapter 2, verse 1, all the way up into this prayer, the Apostle Paul has been looking back and reflecting on his ministry among the Thessalonians and the way in which he ministered. And then he, he, he transitions into talking about how he sent Timothy to them, and Timothy received a good report, and he rejoices in that. But everything he set up at this point is sort of reflecting on his ministry and relationship with the Thessalonians. Once chapter 4 comes, he's going to be give, 
he's going to begin giving them instructions for how they are to live or, or, or ways in which they need better teaching. And so chapter 4 is really a turning point in, in this book. And, and this prayer sort of sits as a transition between what he had been saying and what he's about to say in chapter 4. Now we also think, recognize that this prayer serves as something of an introduction. Because the three things that he mentions in this prayer are really the three things that he's going to mention in chapter 4 as he gives them greater instruction. So for example, just notice that in chapter 4, or in chapter 3, he mentions here that growth in love. And he's going to go on in chapter 4 and verse 9 to say this, Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you. Okay, so he's going to address the topic of love, but he sort of introduces it here in this verse. He's also going to talk about this idea of holiness, right? So in, in this prayer, he prays that we would be blameless in holiness before God. And then in chapter 3, particularly verse 4, he's going to say that, that each of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor. Okay, so he's going to talk about holiness here. And then in, in, in this passage, he also references, or in this prayer, he also references the, the coming of the Lord Jesus with all his saints. And then in chapter 4, in verse uh, 16, really in verses 13 to the end of the chapter, he's going to talk about how in verse 16, the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with a voice of an archangel, and with a sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will raise first. Okay, he's going to talk about this, this coming of the Lord. But the prayer that he prays here at the end of chapter 3 introduces what he's going to say in chapter 4. And so this prayer, we get a sense of what's coming in the weeks to come. Well, with that introductory thoughts in mind, let's now turn our attention to how the Apostle Paul prays for the, the Thessalonian believers. And first of all, we see that he prays, and that we should pray, with a proper view of God. So he begins this prayer, and it's his desire, notice verse 11, he says that our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus Christ will direct our way to you, or direct our way to the Thessalonians. So there are two things in verse 11 that Paul prays that reveal a proper view of God. The first is a proper view of the deity of Christ. And the second is a proper view of the sovereignty of God. Okay, so those two things are going to be his proper view in verse 11. He prays with a proper view of who Christ is and a a proper view of, of God and his sovereignty. So notice, first of all, this proper view of the deity of Christ. Now, this might not jump out to us because we're so familiar with the prayers of the New Testament or just reading the New Testament in general. And, and, and it might not jump out to us, but what Paul does in verse 11 is he puts Jesus Christ on par and on the same level with God the Father. He pre- Notice he prays that our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, so if Jesus was a mere man, as some in this day were saying that he was, and some in our day say that he is, then Paul would have been blaspheming by putting God on the same, or Jesus Christ on the same level as, as God. But if he's, if, he, if he's not, or if, he, if he's not God, then also he doesn't deserve to receive prayer and petition as Paul gives to Jesus here. But in this prayer, Paul understands Jesus and God to be equal persons of the Godhead, and he prays, he prays in such a way. 
In fact, as the passage continues, he even petitions Jesus to work in the lives of the Thessalonians in a way that only God can work. So notice we have in verse 11, he refers to him as, as the Lord Jesus Christ. And then in verse 12, the word Lord is mentioned again. You could also circle, almost circle the word Lord in, in verse 12 because it's going back to the same title in verse 11. In verse 11, he's asking that, that Jesus, the Lord Jesus, would be at work in a way to providentially guide him back to the Thessalonians. And then in verse 12, he's asking that the Lord would work in their hearts so that they would grow in their, in their love. And so as the Apostle Paul prays here, he's recognizing and praying with a proper view of God, that Jesus is equal to God the Father. Again, in verse 13, he's going to refer to the Lord again at his return and, and call for the Lord to, to come. So he's praying here with a proper view of Christ's deity. But secondly, he moves on to pray with a proper view of God's sovereignty. Okay, notice this prayer in verse 11. He says, may our God and Father himself and the Lord Jesus, and he says this, direct our way to you. So Paul prays with a proper understanding of of the sovereignty of God. You remember uh, back to the to the context of, of 1 Thessalonians, the Apostle Paul is, is kicked out of, of Thessalonica because persecution has uh, been incited by the Jews. And he would have loved to stay longer, but he had to, to leave because of persecution. And, and after he left, what we saw was, and through, the, through the pages of Thessalonians what, was that his desire continually was to go back and to minister and to build up the Thessalonian believers. He, he wanted to do this again and again, but we kept seeing that, that, that Satan was hindering him from doing so. Right, so skip back to, to verse, uh, chapter 2, verses 17 and 18. He says, but, but since we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time in person, not in heart, we endeavored the more eagerly with, with, with great desire to see you face to face because we wanted to come to you. I, Paul, again and again, but Satan hindered us. Okay, so, so, say, uh, so Satan had hindered the Apostle Paul from being able to go back to minister to these believers in Thessalonica. And now, as Paul prays in verse 11, he recognizes that the only way he's going to get back to Thessalonica is by God sovereignly working on his behalf. Notice how he petitions him, right? He says, he says may the Lord Jesus direct our way to you or, 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 or lead us back to you or, or, or smooth the path so that we can get back and minister to you. Because Paul recognizes that the only way he's going to get back to the Thessalonians is if God in his sovereignty and in his providence allows him to do so. Now here we learn a valuable lesson about prayer. When we pray, we recognize that God's purpose and plan are supreme and that our requests are subject to the will of God. Okay? So we might request certain things of God, but in prayer we always recognize that our requests are subject to to God's will and purpose. So we pray things like, if the Lord wills, we would ask that this particular request would be granted. But we recognize that Sometimes God answers our prayers with a yes, and sometimes God answers our prayers with a no, 
And sometimes God answers our prayers with a not now because he's always accomplishing his sovereign will in, and, and purpose. But in each answer that he gives, we recognize that his will and purpose are always best. Right? So the longer we walk with Christ and the more we realize that God's purposes and plans are, are always best, the, the more we realize that maybe sometimes in the past things that we prayed for were not the wisest things. And we can look back in hindsight and be thankful that God didn't grant certain requests that we prayed, but because God knew and, and, and had a better plan you know, he was accomplishing his purpose and in, 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 in will in our lives. And so it's not just a reluctant, may your will be done, but it's a trust that his will and purpose are always best. But all of our prayers are subject to God's purpose and, and, and plan. And so when we pray, we want to pray with this proper view in God, of God, that his will is supreme, and all of our requests and desires are subject to to his will. Okay, so if we pray like that, then our prayer life will be strengthened, our faith in God will be increased, and we'll be better off in our prayer life for it. Well, this moves us now to the second thing that we learned about prayer in this passage, in verse 12. We are to pray for the growth of our brothers and sisters in Christ. Now, I think verse 12 is especially helpful in learning how to pray. Because I think if we're honest with ourselves, we often lack a knowledge of how to pray for other people. And because uh, most of our prayer life focuses on the, the sickness and the surgeries that people have coming up, when we encounter a person who's not sick or does not have surgery, well, we're sometimes perplexed at, at, how, at how to pray for them. Like, here's a perfectly healthy person. I have nothing to ask God for this person about. Right? And so maybe we pray like, you know, Lord, I'm sure they got something going on in their life because everybody does. So, you know, put that hedge of protection around them, you know, so that in the event that they do have something, that they'll be protected. Right? Not, not that helpful when it comes to, to prayer. But I like to think about it like this, and verse 12 is helpful on these lines. If our brothers and sisters in Christ are just like we are, in other words, there's no temptation that is not common to man, then we should know exactly how to pray for our other brothers and sisters in Christ. Like, so what do you need prayer for? And what do I need prayer for on a daily basis? Well, that's the same thing that our, our brothers and sisters in Christ need prayer for. Right? We, we need prayer for encouragement in the midst of challenging situations. We need prayer for God's strength to fight against the temptations of sin that bombard us every day. We need prayer to, to grow in love for our spouse, for our children, for our fellow church members, for our, our neighbors. You see, the things we should pray for are the same things that we need prayer for in our lives. It's, it's not as complicated as we make it out to be. And so this is right where Paul goes in verse 12. Right? He prays that the Lord would make the Thessalonians increase and abound in love for one another and for all. Right? So that's, that's his prayer. 
And there isn't a Christian alive today that cannot use this same prayer in their life. Like, you need prayer for this, and I need prayer for this to to increase and abound in our love for one another. And we might recognize, since it's Satan's desire to divide the body of Christ, there is no more pressing request than that we increase and abound in love for one another. Now, as I said, this is a prayer that introduces the studies to come. And so as we continue with Thessalonians, what we're going to find is that prayer becomes a, an important theme. Or, excuse me, love becomes an important theme. And as we move forward, we're going to say more about love. But let's just unpack a little bit from this verse, Paul's request that we grow in, in love. So there's four important things that Paul says about love in this verse, or four important things we want to recognize from this verse about love. So, very foundationally, we want to start with the meaning of love, okay? So any discussion about love in the Bible must start with a proper understanding of love, and here's why. Because the biblical idea of love is almost a foreign concept in our world today. And it's beginning to become a foreign concept within the church as well. So, like, ask anyone in our culture to define love, and you'll get some sort of response that references feelings or emotions or warm fuzzies or a knot in your stomach or love at first sight or or some other type of infatuation-type language. Like today's music almost exclusively speaks of love in terms of feeling and emotion. Like I don't want to pick on uh, Billy Currington, but I will, okay? But, but those who are my age and, and have acquired a, a, the more cultured taste for country music, uh, then you'll, you'll recognize this song, right? So remember this song, I got a feeling, my head's a reeling, my heart is screaming, I'm about to bust loose. Bottled up emotion, it's more than a notion. It starts with an I, it ends with a U. I got a feeling. Are you feeling it too? All right, so so that whole concept of love is, is wrapped up in terms of feelings and emotions. Now, this wouldn't be such a big deal, except that when the world buys into a concept wholesale, it's not long before these ideas start to trickle down into the minds of believers and that the church starts to buy into these things. So Christians today are prone to think of, term, of, of love in terms of feelings and, and emotions instead of a commitment to do what's best for the, the other person. Okay? So when the scriptures talk about love, they think about it in terms of devotion, not emotion. Okay? And, and I know this is like a simple concept, but, it, but we see the fruits of a misunderstanding of this all over the place within, within the hearts and minds of believers. So it's, it's a commitment to do what's best for the other person. It's about devotion, not emotion. Now, there are a number of clear passages in scriptures that call us to this particular truth, right? So Ephesians 5, you don't have to turn there, verse 25, it says, Husbands... Love your wives 
And we might be inclined to think like, well, that's a good passage, right? We should write them love notes and tell them how much we love them. But the, but the passage goes on to clarify what a husband's love for his wife is to look like. He says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. So we're not looking at terms of emotion here. We're looking at terms of devotion. It's, it's, that, it's that we're not concerned with, with how in love you are or you say you are with your spouse, but really it's this idea um, of how devoted are you to her well-being. Do you love her in the way that Christ loved the church? Do you lay down your life for her? Do you build her up? Okay, we see the idea here is that, that love is not about our emotions, but it is about our devotion. Another popular passage, and one we're all familiar with, is 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 4 to 7. Right? Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. So if our understanding of love is in terms of emotions and feelings, we have no idea what 1 Corinthians 13 is talking about. Okay? Because 1 Corinthians 13 is talking about our devotion and commitment to one another, not our feelings of, of love for one another. So one of the mistakes we make when we think about love is to look at the example of a bride and a groom. So we might say, look, look how in love they are. And then you get the best man speech and the maid of honor speech, and it's like, you can just tell how in love they are. All they do is talk about each other. And those of us who are a little more seasoned, maybe cynical, think this couple has no idea what they're in for, right? They might love each other. It might prove that it's just selfish love. But when we think about love, in, in, we don't want to think about it in terms of a couple that's been married for five years. We want to think about it in terms of a couple that's been married for 50 and 60 years. And where one spouse has to take care of the other spouse because their health is fading. And they faithfully stand by the side of their spouse with, with no freedom to get out of the house. It's at those situations we see that love is kind and that love is patient that it's not rude or resentful, that it bears all things and endures all things. That, that's what love is. That's the way the scriptures describe and define love. And the reason this is so important is because Christians have lost this biblical concept of love being about a commitment and devotion. And they've traded it for a cheap imitation of love that doesn't last and that doesn't reveal the power of the gospel. And so the consequences of this shift in thinking from, from a biblical view of love to, to a worldly view of love is that we've lost all concept of commitment to one another. 
and devotion to one another. So the minute the marriage gets difficult, we say we've fallen out of love, as if that's even a biblical expression, and we walk away from the relationship. Or, or when the friendship hits rocky ground, we abandon it because we've lost connection and there's no commitment. Or when a fellow church member becomes difficult to love, and they will, we leave the church for a community of people who are more like us, who we have more of a connection with. But this understanding of love prioritizes connection over commitment. But the idea of biblical love is different. It starts with commitment, and it builds from there. Right? So think about it. The, 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 most, the, the, the best relationships and the, the most lasting relationships are the relationships that thrive in a context of commitment. Right? When you're committed to one another, you're sort of accountable and forced to work out your differences. Like two teenagers who are dating where there's no commitment, it's like, well, you know, nothing gets you over the last one like the next one, so you just sort of, sort of move on. But two people who are married and have committed before God, like, like for better or for worse, we're going to make this thing work. But when things get difficult, it's like, no, we've got to work it out because we've committed before God that, that this is what we will do. And if you don't, it becomes a really, really challenging, committed relationship to live in, right? But, but it, it, it actually it gives us the structure for our relationships so that we can live and, 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 and reconcile our differences. And the same it is with, with becoming a member of, of a church, right? You commit beforehand, before you know fully all the people, and you know all their warts and, and weaknesses, but you're committing beforehand to love these people. And so when it becomes difficult, we don't walk away from it because we've committed before God that we're going to invest and love these people because our love is about commitment and devotion. It's not, it's not about prioritizing a connection. And I might be getting ahead of myself in my notes, but, but when we do this, it actually shows the, the transforming power of the gospel. Like, anybody can hang out with people that are like them. But when we join together across generations and cultures and backgrounds and personalities, and we love one another genuinely, we're devoted to one another, well, that is a powerful testimony to a lost world of how the gospel impacts our lives. So the Bible wants us to think about our relationship with one another in terms of commitment, not necessarily connection. So we commit to one another. That's what the biblical idea of love is. And we would be wise to remove this concept and idea of of feelings and emotions aside and think about love in terms of our commitment and devotion to one another. Now, I do think, I'll just say this aside, I do think feelings and emotions are good, okay? I I, I don't want to give that impression. Like, I don't want you to be married or just be in the church because, bless God, I'm committed. Like, I don't like these people, or I don't like my spouse, but, but I'm committed. I'm committed to them. No. But I think that emotions are the fruit of a loving and committed relationship. 
All right, so I want, I want us to experience all the joy that comes from being married or interacting with one another or being members, but the emotions are not what hold us together. It's our commitment that holds us together before God, and we should experience the fruit of those emotions and, 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 and joy of that in, in our relationships. So, as a side note. Let's secondly notice the source of love in verse 12. Okay, so we've defined what love is. It's, it's commitment to the, to, to the well-being of another person. Now let's talk about the source of our love. So notice verse 12 again. We see the source here. He says, this is the prayer. And, and may the Lord make you to increase and abound in love for one another. Okay, there, there's the source, right? Paul prays that the Lord would make us increase in love because, here's why, the Lord is the only one who can change our hearts in such a way that we love one another as the Bible commands us. So if you look over in chapter 4, verse 9, there's an interesting expression here in chapter 4, verse 9. Paul is starting to give instructions here, and he says in verse 9, Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. Now that's a, that's a fascinating statement. Here's why. Because if you remember, the, Paul did not get to spend adequate time with the Thessalonian believers building them up in their faith. He had to leave prematurely. He would have loved to build them up, but he didn't have the, the opportunity. But when he writes back to him after receiving this report from Timothy, he, he could have written about love, but he goes, you had no need for anyone to write to you about love. And here's what he says. Because you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. Like they didn't even need this, exp- this, this education in love because in understanding the gospel and God's love through Jesus Christ, they had a perfect example of what love genuinely was. And so... They were excelling in loving one another because they were seeking to become imitators of God. When when we are confronted with the gospel and we understand the the beauty of, of Christ's death on the cross for our sins, in that we see the greatest demonstration of, of, of love, and we are impacted by that love. We are taught by the love of God. And that love of God becomes our motivation for love for one another. Right? There's no way that someone can sin against us that is more significant than the way we have sinned against God. And so, if God can love and forgive, then we can love and forgive. And God's love serves as our motivation for genuinely loving one another. Okay, so that's why we say the source here of, of love is Christ himself. And we learn from from Christ. We learn from God. And that example we have is is sufficient. Now much of what passes for love today is is nothing but but self-love. Okay, so it's like this idea of I love me and you love me and you help me love myself better. This is a match made in heaven. Right? How many relationships are, are, are built on that idea? That, that, that you make me love myself better, so as long as you continue to do that, this is going to be a great relationship. 
But Jesus says even the world can love in this way, right? This is our scripture reading was from Luke 6, and Jesus says, if you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. But Jesus says, but I say, love your enemies and do good and and lend expecting nothing in return and your reward will be great and you will be sons of the Most High for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. So be merciful even as your Father is merciful. So, So God is the source of Christian love. Right? Anyone can love those who are who, are, who, are, who love them and are like them, but it's distinctly Christian when we can love our enemies or we can love people that are different from us or we can love across our differences and be devoted to one another in spite of our differences. That is distinctly Christian and it's wrought by God in our hearts. But when we don't love others, it suggests two things. Number one, that maybe we have never understood the love of God in the gospel, and we are not genuine followers of Christ. Or, number two, we don't appreciate the depth of the love we've experienced in the gospel of Christ. In his uh, book, Compelling Community, Jamie Dunlop makes makes an observation, and he's speculating in this observation, but I think it's a good, a good speculation. He talks about the book of Acts and the early history of the church, and he talks about how early in the, in the book of Acts and early in the New Testament, uh, you see a lot of signs and wonders and miracles being done, especially in the early New Testament by the, by the apostles. Like, as they went out in boldness, they were doing many signs and wonders, am- amazing things. You can read about it in the book of Acts. And, and what the purpose of those signs and wonders was, was, to, um, was to confirm the message that the apostles were preaching. And, and, and so there were, there were many signs and wonders done. And the, and, but then he, no, he notes this, or makes this observation, that as the New Testament went along, there became less and less emphasis on signs and wonders. For what reason? And he makes this speculative observation. He says, because as the New Testament began to be, as the New Testament forward and the church began to be founded, the, the powerful sign to the gospel was no longer signs and wonders, but now was the sign of love. That as believers from Jew and Gentile, from male and female, from different walks of life, as they began to come together in the church and live together in genuine devotion and love, that that became a powerful sign to the testimony of the gospel so that there became less and less need for these signs and wonders that the apostles were doing. Again, he's speculating, but I think it's a very interesting, interesting thought. And a reminder of what our love does. That as God works in our hearts as the source of love, that that enables us and motivates us to love one another. Next, we see in this prayer, verse 12, we see the need for growth in love. 
right? So notice what he prays. He prays that these believers, the Lord would be at work in their hearts so that they would increase and abound in love. They were already doing well, but the prayer here is that they would overflow in their love. I think it's worth noting that no matter how well we do in our love for one another, we always have the need to increase and abound in our love. But I think we make this mistake. We think that we need to increase and abound in our love because of the other people we're associated with. Okay, like, they're really difficult to live with, and they're really difficult to love. So, bless God, I I really need to increase in my love because of these other people. But I think what we we find is, is we need to increase and abound in our love because of our own hearts, because of our sinful inclination not to love people. Right, so I, I'm reminded of James chapter 4 when James asked this question, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within your own heart? Now we think it's this, what causes fights and, and what causes quarrels among you? Is it not those other people in your life with whom you're associated? We'd all be like, well, yeah, of course, right? But that's not what James says, right? The, the cause of it is a, is, a, is a failure in our own heart. And likewise, the, the cause for, for why we don't love as we should is not because these other people are challenging to love. It's because in our own hearts, we're failing to be what we should before God, to be transformed by His, His grace, and to love as he loved us. And so we need this prayer to increase and abound in love, not because of the other people in our lives, but because our own hearts are, are often failing in this area of love. So we need this prayer because of the condition of our own heart, because of how prone we are to not follow Christ in love but to sin against one another. And so Paul prays, though there is this need to increase and abound. Lastly, he says about love, and we'll move quickly here. He says that our prayer is to increase and abound. He says this expression at the end of verse 12. He says, for one another, and, he says, for all. Okay, now this is, for one another is probably a reference to believers, and for all is a reference to, to believers and unbelievers alike. And I think what Paul's saying here in this verse is similar to what he says in Galatians chapter 6, verses 10, or verse 10, when he says this, So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, especially to those who are of the household of faith. Okay, so it's an interesting thing. We're to be loving and do good to, to all. Okay, that is to be the character of what it, what it means to be a Christian. But there's a specific responsibility that we have to those who are of the household of faith, our brothers and sisters in Christ. 
we have a specific role of love to them. And, and if you think about it in terms of, I have a role to love my family, and I have a role to love my neighbor, but the way in which that plays out is, is, is different in, in my expression. I have a, a higher commitment to love my family than I do uh, as my relationships expand beyond that. It's this idea here, we're to, to love one another, but especially when it comes to those inside the household of faith. We have an even higher commitment to love them. Okay, so this is what Paul says about love. And this is just introductory, because once we get to it in chapter 4, we'll really hit it hard, all right? So, so that's introductory, this idea of love. So what we're learning in this prayer, then, is we want to pray with a proper view of God. We want to pray for growth for our brothers and sisters in Christ. So this is the kind of prayer, verse 12, that we want to pray for one another. And lastly, we see from this prayer that we want to pray with an expectation of Christ's return. And lest Christ return here in the next moments because the sermon went too long, all right, we'll, we'll try to hit this a little more quickly than we hit the second one. All right, so verse 13, we see this. So that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now notice the, the beginning words of verse 13 indicate purpose. So he wants us to, to grow and, and increase in, or increase and abound in love for one another so that he may establish our hearts blameless in holiness at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, so these words, blameless and holiness, this is the goal of every believer or should be the goal of every believer. To stand blameless before God at the return of Christ. Now, we will stand righteous before God because of Christ's righteousness that has been imputed to the account of those who, who have believed. Um, but I don't think this, posi- this passage is talking about our position in Christ, that, that we've been forgiven and we stand righteous before God. But I think what this is talking about is, is, is practically speaking, when Christ returns, we want to have grown in holiness in such a way that we stand before God blameless in holiness or with a clear conscience that, that as we stand before the, the beam of seat judgment of, of Christ, that we, we did so and we lived in a way that was with a clear conscience and we served God to the best of our ability. Like this is to be the goal of each one of us. When Christ returns, we want to be found blameless in his sight because we walked in obedience. Now, one of the ways we accomplish this blamelessness and holiness is through genuine love for others. Now, there are other ways that we, other, other things that we do to accomplish this blamelessness. Like, so, so in chapter 4, in, in verse 3, he's gonna, he deals with the topic of sexual purity. And, and so we're to be sexually pure in order that we're blameless before God. But here, Paul's specific focus is on how we relate to one another that we're to be blameless, or we're to love one another, so that when Christ returns, we can stand before him with a clean conscience, blameless before his sight. Now, this type of prayer is instructive because it adds an element to our prayer that is often missing from our prayer. You say, well, what is that? Well, I think we lack in our prayers a focus on Christ's return. You notice that in in, in verse verse 13? 
right? Paul's request is not simply that they increase so that things get better in the church or increase in their love so that things get better in the church or, or so that they're more unified moving forward, although those are all good things. But even bigger than that, he prays that they would grow in love so that when Christ returns, okay, looking, looking to the end, that we would stand blameless before him. Now, it's here that this is especially helpful. And our prayers would be more thoroughly biblical if we prayed with more talk and conversation about Christ's return and our need to be blameless until the day that Christ comes. And so this is what we ought to pray for one another. That in spite of the temptations, in spite of the trials of life, that we would persevere. That our goal and desire would to be blameless in the sight of God because one day he's coming back and we're going to stand before him and give an account for how we lived. And on that day, we want to be found blameless and innocent children of God in his sight. And brothers, if we prayed like this, well, it would take our eyes off of some of the things we're experiencing now and move them more heavenward in anticipation of Christ's return. And it would encourage us in even greater ways for holiness so that we would ourselves be motivated to walk blameless until Christ comes. I think it was just last week we were taking the Lord's table and Bob Crump prayed like this. Prayed with this expectation of Christ's return and an anticipation looking forward to that day. And those kinds of prayers edify us as a congregation and remind us of this fact. Christ is coming and we want to stand blameless before him. So we walk in holiness. So here's how we should pray for for one another. Here's how we should pray for, for our church family. We want to pray with a proper view of God that if, if, if it's his will, then we want it to be accomplished. We want to pray for growth for our brothers and sisters in Christ. We've got the same struggles that they do. And so we want to pray for these everyday requests that we would grow in holiness and grow in our love for one another. And we want to pray with a view toward Christ's return. That when he does, we want to stand blameless before him. I heard one pastor say one time that often our prayer meetings are nothing more than an organ recital. And what he meant that is we pray for this person's liver and this person's kidneys, and we recite the organs uh, of the body and pray for them. And that's not bad because uh, the Lord knows uh, our bodies are breaking down and we need prayer. But how much richer and thoroughly biblical is it to pray this type of prayer, that we would increase and abound in love so that we would be blameless at Christ's return. Let's pray together. Father, we're thankful for the opportunity we have to examine the Apostle Paul's prayer. We would say like the disciples, teach us to pray. So may this, may this passage encourage us on our journey and our prayer life so that we would continue to conform every aspect of our life to what you have given us in Scripture. Help us, Lord, to grow in love for one another. We are so prone towards self-love that we don't even recognize it. But we need to love as you've called us to love. 
committed and devoted to one another so that we show the power of the gospel in our lives. We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.